Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Good morning. It's great to be here with you. And am I on? Am I good? Okay. Fantastic. There you go. I, it, it doesn't, it's okay. Someone go back there and see what's going on. All right, just joking. I'm joking. Well, we have a good, good father, don't we? And um, I love the part of that song. When Luke sent out the lineup, he, I, I get the lineup sent to me as well. And I saw good, good father in there, and I was like, I was like that's right. We got to sing that this week. When it says, he is perfect in all of his ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. And then it doesn't just leave it kind of in the abstract. But you are perfect in all of your ways to us, to us, to me. You are perfect in all of your ways to me. And I love that thought that God doesn't, he never makes mistakes. He is a good father and he is perfect. He, 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 he does everything perfectly. Perfection is what God is. And he is perfect in all of his, way to, all of his ways to us. And we can, we can rest in that today. We can have confidence that our father loves us and cares for us. We are beloved children of God if we believe in Christ and he is perfect toward us. Well, this is an interesting passage. Um, As we've made our way through James, we've come to James 3 and 4 and it might seem like James is primarily in a rebuking mode, speaking strong word after strong word after strong word after strong word. But we have to remember that James is, or, or be reminded or learn that James is a pastor. James is the brother of Jesus. He is a pastor and elder in the church at Jerusalem, and he has a lot of pastoral wisdom here for us. The classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life, the the main character, George Bailey, my dad always tried to get me to watch this movie growing up. I never would. I just wouldn't do it. It's like, no way. I'm not watching that movie, Dad. And now it's one of my favorites. We watch it every year at Christmas time. The, the main character, George Bailey, he's a man of ambition, right? He's ambitious as a young man. He's going places, and he talks about how he's going places, right? At one point in the movie, I don't know the exact lines, but he says, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to build skyscrapers and bridges and towns. The last thing he wanted to do was be stuck at ba- Bailey Building and Loan, right, the, the place that his dad was working at. But one event after another, after another, unplanned events for George, the death of his father, the marriage of his brother, kept him at this, loud, this place he never thought he would be, never wanted to be, and it reminds us that events affect our plans that are totally out of our control, Uh, We don't know the future. The future is out in front of us, and we may make plans, but things happen, right? Things happen that are out of our control, and it's just some part of life. What James is after in this passage is he wants us to have a humble approach to life, especially when we think about the future. There are essentially two ways to live when we consider the future, either boastful arrogance or humble trust. 
boastful arrogance, I will go, I will do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And, or humble trust that humbles ourselves before the Lord, accepting his plan for our future. Remember back in James chapter 4, earlier in the chapter, James says, God opposes the proud. I think of a, like opposition, like God stiff arms the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. He brings the humble close to himself. In fact, what, that's another thing that James says earlier in the chapter. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's an amazing promise. I mentioned that earlier before we worshiped. Draw near to the living God, and the living God will come near to you. Have you ever took God at his word with that promise? And just drew near to him in your heart, I me mean, consciously. You're alone, right? It's quiet in your mind and heart, drawing near to God and just sensed the nearness of God toward you. James also says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So go low before God and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. This is what God is after in this, ta- in this passage. This is what God is after. This is what James wants to communicate to us. James, this wise, seasoned pastor, this elder in the church of Jerusalem has wisdom for us, wants to draw us into this place of humility because humility is where God is. When we are humble, God draws near to us. Isaiah 57 says God dwells in two places. He dwells in a place that is unapproachable by us, in a high and holy place. His name is holy. And then he also dwells among the humble. So humility, although, have you ever asked God, God, grant me humility. And then he begins doing some things that teaches you humility. And you're like, no, no, not that way. Don't do it that way, God. God, give me humility. And then when he teaches us from the word or he brings circumstances into our life, that are very humbling, like, no, thank you. Humility is really gets to the center of what it means to be a follower of Christ, right? uh, The Apostle Paul in Philippians says, have this attitude in you that that is yours in Christ. And then it goes into and talks about how Jesus, the eternal son of God, became a man, humbling himself, So James is after, God is after from this passage, teaching us the way of humility. Taking us away from our natural tendency toward boastful arrogance. So here's the way of humility. Humility is believing and confessing and living. So believing in our hearts, confessing with our lips, and living in light of the truth that my future is in God's hands. I'm going to say that again. The way of humility is believing in our hearts, confessing with our mouths, and living in light of the truth that my future is in God's hands. Specifically, my future as it pertains to how long I live and ultimately what I accomplish. This is in the the hands of a loving and wise father. Hopefully we don't have problems like last week. We'll see. Okay, so James, let me, let me just clear something up. James here in this passage is not against planning. 
He's not against planning for the future. He's not against thinking about the future and what we're going to do in the future. I, I, was, visited, I was in a prayer meeting with a couple of guys earlier this week, and a um, conversation came up. Hey, what are you preaching on this weekend? And I shared. And one, one person, not someone in this church, said, hey, what do you do with a passage like that? I mean, God says no planning, don't think about the future. I was just like, I don't think that's what it's saying. It's not saying that we don't plan for the future. The Bible commends and affirms the wisdom of planning for the future. The Bible praises those who have been given God-given gifts of ingenuity. The Bible praises the virtue of hard work and of wise planning. So James is not against any of these things. Proverbs 6 says, Consider the ant, O sluggard. Right? Lazy person. Consider the ant, how they think ahead, and they're storing up food for later. I think it's something in my pocket here. Maybe. Is that it, Luke? Okay. All right. In fact, in verse 15, James says it is right to plan to do this or that. It's just important how we do this. What James is concerned about is primarily a mindset, a mindset that doesn't take into account the reality of life as it is and the reality of God as he is. James is attacking a mindset, a way of thinking and a way of speaking and a way of living that doesn't take into account the truth of God and the truth of life. Verse 13, James addresses those who say certain things. Here's what they say. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Here's what people say. People say this all the time now too. Today or tomorrow, I'll decide. We will go into a certain town We will stay there a certain length of time. We will trade. We will make a profit. Verse 16 calls this boasting and arrogance and says that it's evil because it does not account for life and and God as they truly are. Verses 14 and 15 show us what they, the people James is talking to, and what oftentimes we overlook about life in God that just, it shows us that speaking in this way truly is boasting and arrogant. So James wants to help us walk in the way of humility, and he does this by showing us three things in this passage. The first thing James shows us is our ignorance. Don't take that as offensive, okay? It's just stating the obvious. We don't have perfect knowledge. It shows, he shows us our ignorance. Then he shows us our frailty, and then he shows us our total dependence upon God. Let's look at those one at a time. First, he shows us our ignorance. This is not a slam. It just states the obvious. You and I have very limited knowledge. Nod your head if you agree with me. We do, don't we? We just, there's a lot of things we don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know. And the longer you live, right, like an eight-year-old thinks they know everything. Hopefully this... uh, I, I, once I gave a, a, boy, a, a young boy in the church a ride home, and I said, hey, what are you learning at school? And uh, 
he proceeded to tell me all the things he's learning. He says, I pretty much know everything. <laughs> he really said that. I pretty much know everything. I gave him a quiz. I stumped him. Eight-year-olds think they know everything. Fifteen-year-olds still think they know most things. Twenty-year-olds start to realize they don't know everything. Forty-year-olds, I'm 38, I realize I know a lot less than I, I think I knew 10 years ago. And when you're 60, 70, 80, you realize the longer you live, the less you really know about life, about the way that things work. Psalm 139, King David, it's an amazing psalm, right? He's recounting the, how amazing God is, especially the attributes of God, his omnipresence and his omniscience, that he is, he is everywhere at all time. You can't escape God. If you go to the heights of heaven, he's there. If you go to the depths of Sheol, he's there. If you go out to the middle of the sea, he's there. You cannot escape him, and he knows everything. David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot obtain it. James, however, does not have in mind our ignorance concerning the loftiness and majesty of God. He has in mind our limited knowledge, our ignorance concerning tomorrow. Just tomorrow. Is that bothering you? Okay. We are ignorant even of tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow holds in store for us. How many times have you planned a day out and it went exactly the way you planned it? Maybe every once in a while, but if you really thought about it and sat down and considered your entire day, something probably happened that was unexpected. We are so ignorant just even about tomorrow. Verse 14 says... You who say things like this, today or tomorrow, we're going to do this, we're going to go to this town, we're going to trade, we're going to make a profit. He says, yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. It's like tomorrow is this familiar friend or foe, perhaps, that comes with a bag of things. And as the day goes along, I'm going to try to stay as still as I can, okay? As the day goes along, (laughs) things begin to spill out of the bag. Some things that we expected, a lot of things we don't expect. That's what tomorrow is like. You do not even know what tomorrow will bring. Throw a family into the mix. Okay, there we go. I'm okay, are you okay? We're okay. That's just if it's you alone, you don't know what tomorrow brings. What if you throw a spouse and children in the mix? I have five kids. When the weekend comes around, I have no clue what tomorrow holds. I don't have a clue. Things happen, right? We don't know if tomorrow is going to bring prosperity or adversity. We don't know. You don't know. We don't know if tomorrow is going to bring sickness or health. We don't know if it's going to bring blessing or sorrow. Tomorrow may come and bring with it an amazing, surprising joy. 
or it may bring with it some unexpected sorrow or present you with the greatest challenge you've ever faced in your life. We just don't know. Our tomorrow may bring something that we never planned on. Often it does. So consider how little you know, even about tomorrow, and learn humility as we look out into the future. Learn humility. We don't know even what tomorrow will bring. James goes on to show us our frailty. How many times have you been to a funeral and heard the minister or someone say sometime, somewhere along the line at the funeral or the visitation, life is fragile? Ever heard someone say that? Something like that? Life is fragile. We hear that all the time, especially at a funeral. Later in verse 14, James goes on to say, What is your life? For you are a mist that lasts for a little time and then vanishes away. Life is fragile. Life is frail. James is not saying our life is insignificant. Far from that, our life is very significant, but our life is short. Our life is not durable. Our life is frail. We all know people who died far before we think they should have. It's like, wait a second, how did that happen? I'm amazed. I'm 38 now. So 20 years ago, right now, I graduated from high school. It feels like it was two years ago. Life goes by so short. Our life is a mist. I love that illustration James gives us. Like a mist over a lake early in the morning. Cool, it's been cool in the night, so there's this layer of mist in the morning on the lake, or it's probably been there longer, but you see it in the morning. The sun's starting to come up. It's there at 6 o'clock. It's there at 7 o'clock. It's starting to fade at 8, 8.30, 9, 9.30. It's gone. That's what your life is like. That's what our lives are like. This is wisdom. James is saying, what is your life? You are a mist. You're here for a little time and then you're gone. The little time might be 100 years. And in light of eternity, that's a little time. The little time might be 65 years or 60 years, or 40 years, or 25 years, or 16 years. Your life is a mist. So consider how frail your life is. And learn humility. Learn humility, right? When we're young, we think, there's nothing that can stop me. As we grow and we begin to understand, we got aches in our bodies we didn't used to have, and, and we, we see a little bit of life, and we see people die, and all of a sudden we realize, whoa, life is frail. Life is short. It's humbling. Next, James shows us our total dependence upon God. Because of our ignorance, because of our frailty, James shows us that we are totally dependent on God. Totally dependent on God. Verse 15. James says, come now, you who say. I love how he says, come now. It's kind of like saying, come on, 
you that say things like this. Today or tomorrow we're going to do this, blah, blah, blah. You don't even know what tomorrow holds. You are just, you're a mist. You're going to be here for a while and then you're gone. Then he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. This is not religious jargon. This is not mindless mantra. God willing, Lord willing, if the Lord wills, just learn to say this, kind of tack it on the beginning or end of everything you say. This is meant to, our dependence upon God is really meant to impact us at the level where we believe and feel and then confess, that we don't have to say it all the time, but confess, if God wills. If the Lord wills. This is confessing God's sovereignty and our humble dependence on him. This is confessing that there is a God in heaven that governs the entire universe. This is confessing God is God and I clearly am not. This is a humble, healthy confession. We say, we ought to say, I will do such and such and such. I will go here. I will do this. I will accomplish this. If the Lord wills, realizing that there is a will that supersedes my will. And it's God's. Verse 15 goes on to say, it says, if the Lord wills, we should say this. If the Lord wills. And then James gives us two things we should say. If the Lord wills, we will live. Let that land on you for a moment. If the Lord wills, we will live. Our lives, how long we live, is ultimately in God's hands. Not ours. Not unforeseen circumstances, not the devil, not other people. It's in God's hands. If the Lord wills, we will live. And then if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. What we accomplish in life is ultimately, that's a really important word, Our lives and what we accomplish is ultimately in God's hands. This is not saying we don't take responsibility. We don't try to take care of ourselves. We don't try to learn and grow in our profession or whatever. It's just at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, ultimately, how long we live, our lives, and what we accomplish are in God's hands. Rugged individual uh, individual Western Christians need to hear this. We are in God's hands. We are not autonomous. We are not self-determining creatures. Christians do not affirm the famous poem Invictus written by Henley. The last two lines say, Sounds so epic, but it is so wrong. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We say, no, we are not. 
and we would never want to be. I would blow it. We all would. No, we're going in the other direction. We confess in God, I live and move and have my being. We confess that God gives life and breath to all mankind, including me. We confess, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. Now, some might suggest that this would lead to some kind of fatalistic, either, either, either fatalism, it doesn't matter how we live then, right? God's going to do what God's going to do. We just sit back or whatever, fatalism. Or timid, a t- timid life, timidity, because we don't know if we're going to live or not. Jeez, we don't know what tomorrow holds. Like, oh, my goodness, how do you live? Uh, But I would suggest we approach life in a vastly different way if we really believe what I've said so far. We ought to. We ought to approach life, the future, and God with humility. So how does this help us live differently in light of this true view of life? And God, we don't know the future. We don't know tomorrow. Our life is a mist. And God is sovereign. How do we live life? How do we approach life? How does this help us live differently? Well, I have a few things I'd like to suggest this morning. I'd like you to, I'd like you to consider living this way. I want you to live this way. Not just today, not just tomorrow, but for the rest of your life. First, humble yourself before the Lord and consider, actually consider, your life is a mist. Humble yourself before God and actually consider, really spend time thinking about the fact that your life is a mist. It's short. This will help you live wisely. It will help you live a wise life. You want to be a wise person. If you want to, when you're a 90, if you want to be a sage, then think like this, right? Consider your life as a mist. It will help you live wisely. Really spend time thinking about it. It will give you perspective about what's important, about what's not important, and it will drive you to live in a way that really matters. In the quiet of night, or in the, when you're just by yourself, has it ever, has a thought ever just entered your mind? I want to live a life that counts. I'm not saying famous. I'm just saying a life that matters. Then consider your life a mist. Jonathan Edwards, who was a minister in the 1700s up in the uh, northeast, Massachusetts, he made many resolutions, I think 70 of them. And he would, he would uh, scroll through them, I think, on a daily basis. One of them said this. I think it was resolution number eight or nine. It says, resolved to think much of my own dying. <laughs> you might think, that sounds so morbid. I, I can't do that. 
it could be taken in a morbid way. We could approach it in that way, in kind of some sick sort of sadistic way. Certainly goes against, it seems out of touch with our society, where we want to push death as far away as we possibly can. But the Bible says there is wisdom in it. The Bible says there's wisdom in thinking, whether it's much or some, of our own dying. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. It goes on to say, For this is the end of all mankind. The house of mourning shows us the end of all mankind. And the living will take it to heart. It's better to go to a funeral than a cocktail party. Because here it shows you this is the end of all mankind. Right? It's appointed unto man to die once. We're all going to die. This shows us the end of mankind. And those who are alive and are there, they take it to heart. Two verses later, we are told that ignoring death, ignoring death leads to foolishness. Says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Mirth means amusement. The wise are in the house of mourning. They're considering these things. The fool's like, I don't want to think about that. I I want to go to the fun house. I want to be entertained. I want to be amused. So we should ask God to teach us. We should be like the psalmist in Psalm 90 who said, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Chris Rice used to have a, or has a song from a long time ago. And there's a line that says, Teach us to count our days and teach us to make our days count. When we count our days, when we consider the end of all mankind, then we are ready to make our days count, the days that we have left count. Francis Chan said, I make good decisions when I'm at a funeral. I'm not sure I've ever can recall the decision I made when I was at a funeral, but you get the point, the principle. We think more seriously about what matters. Uh, Reebok, the tennis shoes, uh, clothing uh, line, in the 1990s had an ad campaign. The slogan was, I'm going to say the first part, you might know it, Life is short, play hard. Life is short, play really hard. The Christian slogan should be, life is short, don't waste it. Life is short, do what matters. Life is short, live a life that counts. There was a a band I liked uh, back in my earlier days, the Blues Traveler band, they had a song that said, uh, the chorus of the song, I can't remember the name of it. It might be the same as the the words I'm going to tell you. 
the chorus would say over and over again, it won't mean a thing in a hundred years. We should want to live a life that and do things that will matter in a hundred years. Or better, a thousand years if Christ doesn't return. Or better, that will matter for all of eternity. So whether you are 16 or 90, humble yourself before the Lord and consider your life as a mist. Ask God to help you count your days that you may gain a heart of wisdom for the rest, so for the rest of your days you live a life that counts. One life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Number two, humble yourself before the Lord, confessing and believing that however long you live, it's in God's hands. It's up to God. This will help you live a courageous life. We want to live a wise life. We also want to live a courageous life. Not a timid life, but a courageous one. One that's bold. One that is full of courage. We want to be encouraged in life. If the Lord wills, James says, we will live. And I take this to mean that you and I will not expire one second, one millisecond before our wise, loving, good, gracious, holy, and powerful Father allows us to die. I was expecting some more amens there. All right. I thought, I think that sounds great. I think that sounds so refreshing. I mean, I don't have to like pad myself on all sides and make sure I got enough guns and enough insurance and enough protection because we're in God's hands. You have a father who's wise. We just sang he is a good, good father and he's perfect in all of his ways toward us. And your life is in his hands. He has a great plan for you that's good for you and it's glorifying for him. If you belong to Christ, that is absolutely true. And you will not go one millisecond before he's ready for you to go. It's very liberating, I think. I mean, yesterday I was like, do you even believe that, Josh? Do you really believe that? I want to more. I'm like the guy that came to Jesus and say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because I, I often live life in a, in a kind of a self-preservation mode. Now, of course, we don't want to put God to the test, but I think this, this frees us to take truly God-honoring risks that would make no sense if God didn't have us in his hands. We want to live a life that's courageous. Jesus said in John, uh, Matthew 10, 29 uh, and following, a few, couple, few verses, 
he's talking to his disciples. He's sending them out on a mission. He's sending them out to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, all of this. He's talking to them a bit. And he says to them, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Sparrows. These insignificant birds. Two sparrows sold for a cent. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but he knows the number of hairs on your head. He says, fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. You get the point Jesus is, is after there? Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father. He knows all the hairs on your head. You're more valuable than many sparrows. Be strong and courageous. We sing these, song, we sing these songs that confess this. Right? We sing these songs that are so moving, and it's like, let's take these songs that we sing and believe this and confess this and live this. Right? We sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. We sing that, right? I hope, I hope that's one of my favorite songs. I hope no one here is like, I don't sing that. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand until he returns. Or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Humble yourself. Before the Lord. Confessing. Believing. Acknowledging. Living. In light of the truth that ultimately how long you live. Is in God's hands. It's in God's hands. Number three. Similar. Kind of connected with before. But slightly differently. Slightly different. Humble yourself before the Lord, confessing and believing and living in light of the truth that what you accomplish in life, what you accomplish, your promotion or not, your whatever it is, it is in God's hands. I believe this can free us and help us to live an incredibly joyful life. Here's why. This frees you and I from the pressure of making something happen. We should give ourselves completely and fully to whatever God has put before us, whatever work he has before us, whether it's our family, our marriage, our children, the job we work at, some kind of ministry, whatever it is, we should give ourselves fully to it. And at the end of the day, Go to bed and sleep like a baby, knowing that the results are ultimately in God's hands. I find that deeply helpful. Pray for my kids that they would all know Jesus. If it was, now don't get me wrong, I have responsibility. All of us as parents do. But if it were ultimately up to me, that, that's a weight that I cannot carry. So we pray. 
we plan, we seek God, we seek wisdom from others in all of our endeavors. And then we launch out into whatever God has put before us, believing and saying, if the Lord wills, I will accomplish this and that. Isn't that what James is telling the people he's writing to? Who say, we're going to go here, we're going to make some money, we're going we're to knock it out of the park. So what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Second Samuel chapter 10, I love this story between, it's Joab and Abishai. I think this helps give, I find it uh, helpful in its balance. Joab and Abishai, they're mighty men of David, mighty men of valor. They, they're brothers. They both have their platoon of men. They're fighting two armies. Joab turns to Abishai and says, you take these guys, I'll take these guys. And if you need help, I'll come help you. And if I need help, you come help me. And then he turns to him and says, be courageous for the people of God and for the cities of our God. And here's what he says, and may God do what seems good to him. Be courageous. Let's fight. Let's do this. Let's go after it. And may God do what seems right to him or good to him. God grants the victory. God grants the accomplishment. So do, what is, do whatever is before you with all of your heart. And at the end of the day, believe, confess, and know that God will ultimately accomplish what he wills to accomplish through your efforts. I have a question for some here. Are you concerned that God may not have your best interests in mind? You see, we often think we know how our, we want our lives to go. We think we know the best path to get there. And when we hear something like this, I mean, of course, there might be theological issues as well, God's sovereignty, all of that. But sometimes we're just not sure we want someone else in control of our lives. That we want someone else actually, like, ultimately in charge. Are you concerned that God may not have the best, your best interests in mind? That your life may be better left, better if left in your own hands. Ultimately, ultimately in your own hands. God does have our best interests in mind. Our Father is loving and wise and infinitely good. There is no shadow of darkness in him. There's no sinister kind of out to get us. He has our best interests in mind without a doubt. Do you know that Jesus, you know, we say, if the Lord wills or God, your will be done, whatever. Do you know Jesus prayed this way? Jesus prayed this way as well. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus is feeling the weight of what he's about to bear, the sin of the world, the just and right condemnation for our sins, the, the fierce and white-hot anger of God because of our sin. Jesus is 
coming face to face with what he is about to experience on the cross, it says he's in such agony that drops of sweat are coming off of his brow. And he says to the Father, he says, Father, if there's any way, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Brothers and sisters, when we wonder if God, who is a, if God, who is a father, who is a loving father, if he has our best interests in mind, all we have to do is look to Christ and look to the cross. And we see right there the rich and deep mercy and love of our Father. Isaiah 53 says this. It says, It was the will of the Father to crush Jesus on the cross so that Jesus might usher many sons and daughters into God's family. Many sons and daughters You and I, coming before our Father, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, it was the will of the Father to put him to death, to have him put to death, so that we could become sons and daughters of God. He is a good, good Father. He is a good and gracious Father. Do you know him as a good Father? I mean, one that you can actually humble yourself before and entrust yourself to? That if your, your life is in his hands, it's in a safe place. That if your job and your financial security, whatever you, your accomplishments, is in, ultimately in God's hands, that it's in a good place. That your life is a vapor, no matter how long you live, your life in light of eternity is very short. And you will come to your father someday when you die, and enter into paradise. Do you know him as a good and gracious and loving father? Not a distant deity. Not a distant deity. But a loving father. That says, come to me. Come to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the truth that we see today in this text. God, I pray that you would grant us the humility to see our lives, consider our lives amiss, to know and acknowledge and confess that our our lives are in your hands. However long we live, it's in your hands. And whatever we accomplish is up to you. And we'd humble ourselves and we'd look to the future and live out the rest of our days in wisdom and courage and joy, knowing that we have a good Father who holds us in His hands, who purchased us by the blood of His own Son and has brought us to Himself. So, Father, encourage us with this today, I pray. As we go, as we celebrate this holiday weekend, spend time with family, I pray that we'd remember these words, and be drawn to our good and gracious Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Be blessed. Have a great holiday, extended weekend, and we'll see you soon.